Caution, the contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And we're also very happy to be hosting a special guest who'll be with us for the next few episodes, Jeremy Cuevas. Hi there, Asa and Allison. Very happy to be here. Longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> Yes, my name is Jeremy D. Cuevas, and I'm a conductor in the Denver area. I studied at Colorado State, which is where I met Asa a couple years ago, and I host the Podium Time Podcast, which is a podcast of interviews of conductors for conductors about conducting. Well. And you should definitely listen to it. Where might you be available, Jeremy? We are available just about everywhere. Um, I've been pushing people towards Spotify, but Google Podcasts and Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to podcasts is perfect. Excellent. Sounds great. So for the next few episodes, we'll be delving into a special breed of musicians who make no noise, yet how they perform the music is absolutely critical to our modern large ensembles. Yes, we are going to be talking about the humble conductor. Some of them are humble. (laughs) (laughs) During the Baroque era, ensembles were much smaller than our modern orchestras, falling more into the range of what we would now consider a chamber ensemble. If you've attended concerts of string quartets, piano trios, etc., you'll know the performance is done without a conductor, completely with the instrumental musicians working together and listening to each other to keep the music together. This is what would happen in the early ensembles as well. The concertmaster, violinist, or keyboardist would set up a tempo to get everyone going. With the small group size, the system worked pretty well, and the music was simple enough for musicians to just keep going. But as we've discussed on the podcast in the past, as time went on, the size of musical ensembles grew. In the early days, musicians would generally play while standing, and they would stand fairly far away from each other. Of course, this meant it became harder and harder to hear across the ensemble to make sure everyone was playing together. And to complicate things more, the music itself became more complex. The solution to this was to have a more apparent means of conveying the tempo. Some concertmasters resorted to waving rolls of paper or their hands in the air for all of the ensemble to see, and others would use their bow to make an audible tapping noise for the ensemble to follow. This technique was also famously adapted by Jean-Baptiste Lully, a French Baroque composer. go so far as to use a heavy wooden staff to mark the time for his ensemble, and though this added an obnoxious level of noise to the pieces he was leading, it was effective at forcing the musicians to play together. Lully served under King Louis XIV as the royal composer of instrumental music, and apparently he was also an excellent dancer. Lully unfortunately met an untimely demise at the hands of his own musical craft, In an episode when he was pounding his staff quite loudly on the ground, he accidentally pounded it right into his own foot. It seems the wound was quite bad, and even in a time of questionable medical practice, it was recommended that a foot amputation would be more beneficial than trying to treat. But Luli would not have it, saying he would, quote, rather die than lose his ability to dance. 
With such a bad injury, it's unlikely that Luli got back to dancing before the wound became infected. This infection then spread through his body, and he did die in 1750, the same year as Johann Sebastian Bach. So with that anecdote, we know our modern vision of a conductor was not yet on the scene by the end of the Baroque era. However, by the end of the classical era, we do have more evidence of conductors stepping up in front of the orchestra and actually giving direction. We know Beethoven would often try to direct his own symphonies, but due to his temper and deafness, his orchestras largely ignored him and still just followed the concertmaster. One of the first pieces of evidence we have of a conductor using a baton and really taking command of the orchestra in rehearsals and performances is when the composer Louis Spohr conducted the London Philharmonic Society in 1820. He asked the orchestra and their keyboardists to trust him with a little experiment during rehearsals, and he took the keyboardists' full score with him to the front of the orchestra. He then produced a thin wooden baton and used it to show the tempo to the orchestra. During this landmark rehearsal, Spohr also would periodically stop and give notes and suggestions to the orchestra, and this seems to have been a groundbreaking practice at the time. According to Spohr's accounts, his method of rehearsal and conducting resulted in a high level of playing, quote, never before heard in London. Though Spohr was definitely not the first person to direct an orchestra with a small, light baton, his recounting of the event is evidence of the changing views of orchestral conducting during the Romantic era. And soon, we see many of the famous composers taking on the role of conductor, often going on tours to conduct and not necessarily just to promote their own music. One of the most famous examples is Felix Mendelssohn. Though a great composer in his own right, he was instrumental in conducting a great performance of Johann Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew Passion, which brought forth the so-called Bach Revival. We of course then see more and more composers also being renowned as fabulous conductors as well, such as Liszt, Berlioz, and Wagner, to name just a few of the hundreds. The composer and conductor Hans von Bülow was not as well known as many others, but he was probably the first musician to be a conductor that also wrote music instead of a composer who also conducted. He was Wagner's close friend and conducted the premiere of many of his operas from memory. That's right, Wagner's four-hour operas he conducted and <laughs> premiered from memory and set a really high bar for all of us conductors in the future. On a separate note, Below was married to a woman named Cosima, who was Liszt's daughter, and eventually Cosima left Below to marry his close friend Wagner. Now, that's a movie that I want to see made. <laughs> Orchestras continued to grow and music continued to get more complex, and that brings us up to the modern era. The art of conducting has become its own specific discipline within the context of musicianship. Just like a clarinet player or composer will go to a music school to study clarinet or composition, most conductors have gone to school and earned a degree specifically for conducting. Only clarinet players and composers go to music school. <laughs> <laughs> and though composers can often conduct and conductors often still compose, both usually prefer to specialize and let somebody else play the other part. The art of composing and the art of conducting combined with the art of instrumental or vocal skill come together to form the trifecta of musical performance, which is a term coined just now on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. <laughs> Here on the Coffeehouse, you've heard us talk many times about performance and compositional techniques. So now with Jeremy's assistance, we're going to spend a little time talking about how to conduct. 
So from an audience perspective, it might look like a conductor is just waving their arms around in whatever way they choose. But there are some general rules and patterns that conductors use to convey their feelings to the ensemble. Depending on the music, conductors have a variety of tools that they can use to communicate. All the communication during a concert is visual. The players are just seeing the conductor because they can't talk. The most basic of those visual cues is how they show the meter of the music and which way the rhythm of the music is organized. For example, if a piece is written in 4-4 time, like much of music is, the conductor will want to show each of the four beats in a different and predictable way so the ensemble members don't get lost in the measures. The downbeat of a measure is aptly named as it is standard for a conductor to show the first beat with a downward motion. Another standard is that the last beat will always be in an upward motion. This is critical as it sets up the position for the following downbeat. The beats in between the first and last have a little bit more freedom, and they usually involve the hands and baton moving horizontally. The trick is to be able to set up the final beat, which we already said is always upward, coming from the outside of the body. So in our 4-4 measure, the first beat is down near the center, then the second beat moves across the body to the left, the third beat moves across the body to the right, and the fourth beat comes back to the middle and goes up, and then we're ready for the downbeat at the beginning of the next measure. Within this pattern, a conductor should show some style and how the music should sound. If the music is soft or loud, they will usually use very small or very large beats. But music is usually more than just loud and soft. The conductor must also show character. If the music is precise, like a military march, the conductor make made fast movements and stop at the end of each beat to show the orchestra that everything is short and pointed. Alternatively, if the piece requires a little more bounce and playfulness from the performers, the baton may show a little more rebound at each point and almost be like bouncing a ball off the floor or throwing a ball up and catching it. And in lyrical music, the beats can blend together and it may look like there are no beats at all coming from the conductor to show the musicians that they should be smooth and equal between every note instead of emphasizing every beat. The most basic job of the conductor is to show the orchestra when to start and how fast to play. This is what most beginning conductors will learn first, but ultimately the conductor's job is also to show how the orchestra should play the music and to make decisions about the music. That's why the conductor is expected to show the character of the music as well as showing when things should happen. Another question most people have about conducting is the role of the baton. You may have most conductors using a baton, but many also don't. Generally, conductors of orchestras and bands use the baton but conductors of choirs just use their hands, but that's by no means a rule. It all depends on the conductor and what they're comfortable with. Yes, exactly. The benefit that a baton gives is what we describe as amplifying the conductor's movements so that the whole ensemble can see the beats. 
Think about it this way. If you stick out your finger and just move your wrist up and down, your end of your finger only makes an arc of about five to six inches. But if you have a baton or a stick or a ruler in your hand, that small movement creates an arc much bigger than just a few inches. Because in an orchestra or a band, some of the players are sitting about 30 feet away or more from the conductor. And in a large piece with choir, some of the choir members are maybe 50 or 60 feet away. It's usually helpful to have a baton because it creates a bigger arc so that everybody can see it, no problem. But again, this isn't absolutely required because the baton isn't the conductor's instrument, the orchestra is. Now, Jeremy, I thought that the baton <laughs> is the conductor's instrument. What do you mean by what you just said, that the orchestra <laughs> is the instrument instead? Thank you for asking, Asa. So the conductor doesn't actually make any music by themselves, right? Right. And the baton doesn't actually make any sound by itself, except if you swing it really fast and it makes a little whoosh like this. And, you know, most people wouldn't call that music. John Cage, maybe, but most people wouldn't. So for all intents and purposes, the conductor doesn't actually make a sound. It's actually the people in the orchestra playing their instruments. For both orchestra and conductor, the notes and rhythms are already decided when you get the music. But just as a violinist must use their hands and bow to make the violin make sound, the conductor must use their hands, their baton, and their words to show the orchestra how to make the sound and how to shape the music. Because of this... Being a conductor is surprisingly just as much about being a good leader as it is about being a good musician. Many conductors describe our job as empowering the orchestra to make music or allowing them to make the music and then helping them along. It's all about leading the people who play the instruments, which is why being a conductor is so darn difficult to do and so darn difficult to describe and understand. But I think we can talk about that in much more detail on the next installment of the Coffeehouse Classical. Thank you, Jeremy, very much for joining us on this episode. Happy to be here, Asa. Thank you. And if you've enjoyed this episode of the Coffeehouse Classical and look forward to the other one just as much as we do, go ahead and drop a follow if you are listening to us on Spotify, like and review us on Google Play, and share us with perhaps a conductorly-minded friend. <laughs> for the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. I'm Allison. And I'm Jeremy. Thank you so much for listening. Selections from Lully's Le Bourgeois Gendelon Suite were performed by the Advent Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Roxana Pavel Goldstein. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. <laughs>